0: The Jewish Trauma Network provides education, guidance, and inspiration to individuals and families suffering from trauma to help them create a better life of connection and self actualization. I'm your host, Dr. Yosef Tropper, and my greatest wish is to bring calmness, hope, and success to your life. Welcome, everybody. Today's topic is a really important one grief and trauma with Tiffany Dilworth. I've had the privilege of knowing Tiffany for over the last three years, and she's given some amazing trainings. Um, on specifically that topic of grief from death or grief from trauma, which I think there's a lot of overlap there. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to hear about that information from Tiffany today, especially with the spiritual lens, um, which is a big focus of this podcast. I'm going to introduce Tiffany with a just reading her bio, and then we'll uh, kick it off with Tiffany. So Tiffany Dilworth, LCPC, is a compassionate and motivated individual who is always striving to find innovative ways to bring support to others. She received her masters in community counseling from Oklahoma State University. She's a licensed clinical professional counselor who specializes in PTSD, grief, and sexual trauma. She can be reached at missdilworth.com. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Tiffany.
1: Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm excited to to be here and talk with you for a bit.
0: Now, I understand that this topic is a very heavy topic. So, my first question I want to start off with is just how do you ground yourself in the work that you're doing as clinicians as people When we're exposed to death or trauma or both sometimes, because we know there's overlap as well, just how do you take care of yourself?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, And you're right, vicarious grief can definitely happen. We can start, begin developing some symptoms from our clients if we're not careful. And so when I was in grad school, I had the opportunity to interview other clinicians. And there's a clinician, she shared with me, the key is to leave work at work. Whenever the day is over, whatever happened at work, you leave it at work and go home and go interact with other people, go engage with the world. And so I've always held on to that. And that's helped me out a lot. Unfortunately, as in our field within the first five years, about 50% of us end up leaving the field because it is so heavy. Just hearing trauma after trauma, grief after grief, it can be very heavy. And so that's been helpful for me. It's just leaving work at work. And then also nature. I'm a huge nature person. I love going for walks. I love just hearing waterfalls, sitting and listening to birds. So nature has been a really big help for me as well.
0: Amazing. I I really appreciate that. Especially what rings a chord with me is when I first started in my process, if somebody would call and say, Hey, do you do grief counseling? I would just say no and hang up on them. And, Mm -hmm. or maybe if I was in a good mood, I would refer them. If you're a grief counselor, which is is something that you're trained in and something that you're known for, then you're not saying no to these people, and yeah. they're calling you, and, and you're you're getting a lot of those calls because let's face it, the longer you live, the more grief there is. Mm-hmm. People, people yeah. die. So I once volunteered in a nursing home, and one of the ladies that I used to visit said to me, "The hardest thing about getting old is all the people that die along the way." Mm-hmm. Not to be too morbid, and then when you're saying that I'm a trauma therapist, then I spend a lot of my mm-hmm. day with people with trauma, but I don't ever think of that as oh my gosh, that's so overwhelming. Obviously, we, like you said, we take good care of ourselves. And that's the foundation of being a Good therapist. But when you're just seeing so much grief and so much trauma, which is also has that grief part, that definitely demands us to take care of ourselves. So thank you for that. that's very helpful. Maybe let's start with just what are some symptoms of grief? Like obviously everybody feels sad after they have a loss. I guess let's talk about death first in general. What are some symptoms that come up in grief? Yeah.
1: And so when it comes to grief is a natural reaction after a loss, The concern is when people get stuck in that grieving process. That's when it's alarming and therapy is definitely encouraged. And so the natural experience when it comes to grief is this early onset, it's called acute grief. Because acute grief is soon after the loss, we have a lot of intrusive thoughts about the person, a lot of memories about the person. We have a longing, a yearning for the person. It's intense sadness. For some people, it can be intense anger as well, intense um, guilt for some people as well, depending on type of death. Um, for others, there's changing eating habits. Maybe they stop eating or they overeat. Some people change sleeping patterns. They don't sleep enough or they oversleep. And then some people, it can be very intense. They even have challenges with daily functioning. Hygiene might decrease for some people. Some people might have suicidal thoughts, desire to be with the person who has died. And so there's definitely a continuum. And am going from mild symptoms to severe symptoms for a lot of people. But what happens many times, there's been a lot of research and studies that shown if we have a lot of support from our family, our friends, our spiritual orientation, many times we can learn how to adapt after the loss. And so those intense symptoms that you may have experienced, changing sleeping patterns or eating habits, intrusive thoughts, slowly begin to decrease as time goes on. And that's what is called integrated grief when we're able to engage in life and be able to accept that, yes, I've experienced this loss and it hurts, but I'm still able to engage in daily functioning. I'm still able to go to work. I'm still able to feed my children and pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And of course, when the holidays come up, people can get re-triggered again, or when the anniversary of the loss happens, people can get re-triggered or the person's birthday comes up, definitely re-triggered and those intense emotions can come back. Um, And then afterwards, they go back to being able to engage in daily functioning and being able to focus at work and have typical sleep patterns as well. And so it would be great if there's just this one picture that fits everyone, but grief really impacts everyone differently. It does. Um, It reminds me of sometimes how people experience delayed grief, how one moment they are experiencing life, they experience a loss, and they're the quote unquote strong one in the family. Or they're the one that has a lot on their plate. So they weren't able to grieve in that moment. Not until maybe years later, that's when they're able to grieve. And it can be very confusing for them to recognize that I didn't have a chance to grieve. That's why I'm grieving years later. And so it can look very different for a lot of people. Great question, though. Yeah.
0: Thank yeah. you. And great answer, really. Just as a quick resource, I appreciate it because I've taken courses with Tiffany on a lot of these topics. So, holiday triggers. Tiffany has a great course Mm -hmm. on that, which is it could be a few hours by itself, um, which is so true and anniversary triggers and also just defining grief. So I really appreciate what you did. There's basically a big spectrum of how people react. So Mm -hmm. that's very helpful. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. As far as when people experience grief, sometimes I feel like the DSM itself struggles with this because they're always changing grief definitions. Oh, that's not a yeah. problem. Or no, this is now called prolonged. I feel like this is the exact struggle mm-hmm. because what is normal? What's abnormal? Irv Yalom in his book about talking about the grief over his wife, he talks about how he was hallucinating and he felt like he was psychotic. Mm-hmm. But if you have the insight to say I'm hallucinating and I think I'm psychotic, I'm not really sure what to do with that. But I don't think there's anything wrong if somebody you know has a loss and they go through that type of episode um, and he definitely mm-hmm. you know, reached out and got help. So I guess my question for you is in today's current research, What's the um, length or symptom symptomology that kind of says this is just the normal, I think you called it acute grief, or it's just like Mm -hmm. the regular starting process versus, hey, I should really talk to someone. Like, where do you draw that line?
1: Yeah, great question. And yes, like I said, acute grief is an early time period after the loss, and that's considered normal, quote unquote normal. Uh, But chronic grief or prolonged grief, that's when, according to the DSM, They have given it 12 months for adults. 12 months months after a loss, if an adult experiences these symptoms, then they can be diagnosed with prolonged grief disorder or be considered having chronic grief or complicated grief. That means there's some type of complication in the grieving process. When it comes to children, according to DSM, it's six months. And so this has been very controversial in recent times. So the DSM-5 TR came out in March of 2022. It came into effect. And so prior to them, it was a persistent complex bereavement disorder, and it said nine months for children, but now we're saying six months. So it's decreased by three months. And there's a lot of controversy because how can we put a time limit on grief, especially six months um, for children? And so thankfully in the DSM, they do have a component in there that's cultural and spiritual related. But so says within the person's spiritual context or the sp- person's cultural context, if it says that they're able to grieve longer than that, then they can't be diagnosed with prolonged grief disorder. For example, in some cultures in Africa, it's quite common the first year after a loss, everyone grieves. They mourn however they need to grieve and mourn. And then after that 12-month time period, they come together, have this huge celebration of the person. They talk about the person and just sit in memories of the person. And so let's say we have a child come in and they're nine months into the grieving process. Because within the culture, it says they can grieve up to 12 months. They can't truly be qualified as having prolonged grief disorder. And so it's great that it does have a component of spirituality and culture in there to let us know that, hey, every culture, every spiritual orientation is a little bit different and may not coincide with what we're saying. Um, so it's great that they do have that that in there, but again, when that first came out, there's a lot of controversy about this concept of just six months to grieve, and that's it. Uh, that's not a very long time um, to think that about how much it impacts somebody. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah I, I appreciate that cultural factor, and I think sometimes because I come from a Jewish culture, when I work with clients that are not Jewish, I sometimes use that as a as a standard. But in in our in the Jewish culture, so. The first day is considered a very dark day where a person is not obligated to even do anything spiritual because they're just in a dark place until the burial which i think is a very sensitive thing and then the seven days after death are, are called the shiva which is basically seven it's seven days of refraining from work refraining from showering maybe a little bit of personal hygiene etc but it's really just a time where family and friends come over to visit and to sit with the mourners and to mourn with them that loss and i feel a lot of cultures have that built in and that's really helpful as part of the grieving process, I had a client actually that I worked with about 15 years ago, very sad story. Her husband was a non-Jew and she was Jewish, but not religious. And she was married to a, a, a non-Jew. And when he was passing away, they had had a very contentious marriage and she came for grief counseling. And basically he told her that that since, that since he wasn't Jewish, therefore she was allowed to mourn him for the seven days, like according to her religion. And after that, mm-hmm. she has to forget about him and not think about him, which was uh-huh. very, very damaging to her. Because it just totally confused her way, and yeah. I met with her, I went through. There's lots of cultural ways, even in her husband's faith, that celebrated that. But in the Jewish culture, the first seven days are really, like you said, a lot of social connection, a lot of connecting and bonding, and a lot of remembering. Because you know, we believe that the more you talk about it, to a certain degree, the healthier it is. And just like I do, that the research is people that want to stay strong, although it's very commendable and it's understandable, but oftentimes they're the ones that have the prolonged grief. Like I, I, maybe we'll come back oh. to if we have time where they come to therapy 10 years later or 20 years later, they say, well, I never really mourn this thing. And in the Jewish religion, the first 30 days are also, have certain laws about memory and commemoration. And then the first year has mourning rituals, like you just mentioned. And then the yard site, the yearly anniversary is very significant. So I think that has a lot of built-in stuff. And I've learned from a lot of my you know, non-Jewish clients, whether Indian or Christian or, or, or Muslim or other cultures, there's a lot of you know, grieving that's built in. I think that's very helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It definitely helps with the grieving process and to learn to live alongside the loss um, versus this combative, I have to forget about it, I have to forget about it or deny it, or I have to just stay stuck in it. It's built in, like you said, to be able to commemorate. Yeah,
0: Amazing. So before we pivot to the trauma grief, I want to just ask you the question, probably you hear from everybody, but everybody's familiar with the five stages of grieving, Elizabeth Cooper Mm -hmm. Ross. What's your take on that? Is that a model that you use? Is that a model that you have any critique on, et cetera?
1: Yes. And so it's so interesting when it comes to her five stages of grief. David Kessler did a lot of work with her before she had died. And for those of you who may not be familiar, when she did the five stages of grief, she didn't mean for them to be actual stages, concrete chronological stages You have experienced this stage, then sadness, then depression, then anger. She meant it more for it uh, to be more fluid. And so thankfully, David Kessler, again, who did a lot of work with her, came back and did an addition to her book. And he talks about this concept of it being more fluid. So one day we can feel angry about the loss. The next day we can feel sad. The next day we can go back to anger. The next day we can be in shock and denial. And so by that addition, I definitely think there's a lot of truth in that perspective. I definitely think there's a lot of truth in it's very fluid. Some days we can be in denial and shock. Other days we can be really sad. Other days we can be angry. Other days we can wish, I wish this hadn't happened. But the ultimate place is to get to this place of acceptance, this place of acknowledging that this person's no longer here. I'm sad and that's okay, but I can still live life. I can still move on and do the things I need to do to function and to be successful in life. I think that's the ultimate goal. Reminds me of a story that David Kessler shared a couple of years ago. I had an opportunity to share a stage with him. And shares the story of this young lady walking in. wanting to talk to Dr. Elizabeth L- L- Ross. And the young lady walks in and says, Dr. Ross, this is the stage that I'm in. And she says, hold on, let's pause. Forget the stages. How are you doing? And so sometimes I have to do that with my clients. When they come in and say, oh, this is the stage I'm in, I have to pause and say, you know what? Let's just check and see how you're doing. Let's forget the stages for a moment and just see how, how what's life like for you. How has life been since this loss? So, the point that we, uh, well, from my perspective, is to at least acknowledge the stages of grief and how it can be fluid, but at the same time, not get so stuck inside of them. Think, okay, I'm in this stage. Now I have to go to this next stage. Now I have to go to this next stage. Because um, because grief is it's a messy experience. It would be nice if it was nice, clean, um, and chronological, but it's not. It's a very messy experience.
0: Yeah. So, I, I that's
1: it. my take on it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Thank you for that. And thank you for bringing up David Kessler. Now, he's a very famous author um, who took over yeah. the, some of the life work of Elizabeth. I, I think he even added, didn't he add like a sixth stage officially? Yes, like yes. Yes, meaning, yes. meaning six...
1: yes. making. Yes, making meaning of the loss. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, like, definitely. You, you could argue that's part of acceptance, but it's just more articulated, finding that meaning. There's a lot of people that are going through all types of grief now with just the current world situation. And I think there's always yeah. things going on that are you know triggering to people. And- I actually feel like you have to go through the grieving process before you start finding meaning because it, it gets very tricky a lot, especially with spirituality. Sometimes people feel this very strong urge of God is talking to me and telling me something directly. And I think that's very mm-hmm. beautiful and important. And if, if and, and I, I believe that everything that happens is for a reason, et cetera, which yeah. is a whole topic we could talk about death and, and grieving, et cetera. But I think that some people rush to find meaning before they actually find mm-hmm. grieving. And I, I wonder if you could say something about that order as well, just as someone that deals with this more frequently than I do.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It reminds me of just what you shared, that concept of the importance of going through the grieving process before jumping into meaning. Because when we jump straight to meaning, sometimes we develop the wrong meaning because we can't actually go through the grieving process. And so when he talks about making meaning, um, just think for a moment of a nonprofit organization or maybe drinking driving initiatives If you look at the founders of a lot of those drinking driving initiatives and the founders of those nonprofit organizations, at some point, they experienced a major loss. Because of that major loss, it has led them to develop this nonprofit organization or to start this drunk driving initiative. And so a lot of that is because they went through the grieving process. And when they went through the grieving process, they said, you know what? I don't want anyone else to experience this. I don't want anyone else to be alone in this experience. And that's when they're able to find true meaning. And so it's very important, like you mentioned, to go through that grieving process to truly find what is the actual meaning behind this experience. Um, Yeah, it's very important that we go through that process. And then when we do get to that place of finding meaning and others come into our lives, it's much easier for us to help them to get to the other side of grief as well, because we've actually gone through that grieving process.
0: That makes sense. Thank you for bringing him up. Um, And that's really helpful. I want to pivot to the next. And, and a very important part of this, which is grief from trauma, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional abuse or other things. And can we talk about that and define it? Because I know for me as a clinician, that's something very obvious um, that's present. And for me taking courses with you, definitely a lot more sensitive to that as well. And, I'll, and by the way, uh, in the resources, you'll find all the uh, courses from uh, Tiffany. And uh, there's some great stuff on prolonged grief and grief primer, as well as holiday triggers. And just really, and also had to run a grief group if you're a clinician trying to get into the field, which grief therapy and group is very synonymous. There's a lot of that social aspect. But just that the prevalence of grief, the need for grief and the feeling of grief uh, when going through a trauma. Can we talk about that? Yeah,
1: Yeah, definitely. And so when it comes to sexual trauma, the area that I specialize in, um, unfortunately, according to statistics, one in six females will experience an attempted rape within their lifetime. And one in 10 individuals who reported of being raped were males. It is something that does happen quite often. That's only those who report it. There's a lot of situations that happen that's not being reported as well. And so when we think about just how often it happens, it makes sense why we're having conversations about it. And unfortunately, what happens is that most people think of PTSD um, when it comes to sexual assault, the nightmares, the intrusive thoughts, the flashbacks, panic attacks, depression. But what they don't realize is is that there's a grieving component in there as well. There's this expectation of this is how life was going to look for me. I was going to go on and have these different experiences. And then all of a sudden I experienced this tragedy, this trauma, this abuse. And it's changed the trajectory of my life. And so they have this shattered reality. This anticipated trajectory that they thought life was going to be has been broken. And that can cause people to grieve. Also think about identity. Many times when people experience sexual trauma, it's a change in their identity, they begin to question who they are. Um, are they really what this person said they are? Are they really this object of how they've been treated? And so now they have to grieve and mourn who they thought they were and create this new being. Um, thankfully, due to spirituality, a lot of people can go to their spiritual orientation and their higher power, or God, whatever it might be, will say, hey, this is who you are. This is how I see you. This is who I created you to be. And so, a lot of people who are within a spiritual orientation, they do kind of have more grounding versus someone who is not in a spiritual orientation. They have to figure out who am I? exactly how do I figure out who I am? And so that in itself can be grief. I'm trying to figure that out. Um And then the next component is family and friends. Unfortunately, when some people experience sexual trauma, a lot of the perpetrators are people that they know. So their family members, their friends. There's people that are family, are friends of the family, who have engaged in, this, in the sexual assault. And when they share with their family, hey, this person sexually assaulted me, sometimes family members may not respond well. And they distance themselves from that person. Or they minimize and say, well, that didn't really happen. Or are you sure that happened? They minimize that person's experience. And when our loss, when our trauma is being minimized, that's what can bring on grief. That could bring on sadness and despair. And then thinking about feminists who separate themselves from that person or distance themselves from that person, that can also bring on some sadness and grief as well. It reminds me of a client I was working with several years ago. She's a college student and she had a college friends, and they were just this really tight knit group. Unfortunately, one of the guys in the group sexually assaulted her, and she told some of her friends about it. And her, their friends were going to see an in-between place. Do we spend time with her, spend time with him? How do we handle this? Unfortunately, a lot of her friends ended up distancing themselves from her and spending time with him because he denied it. No, that never happened. that never happened. And so she had a loss of friendships, which of course can lead to grief as well. And so there's many different factors, many different experiences people have after trauma that can definitely lead to grief as well. The last one thing I'll share with you is this concept of how do I deal with grief or how do I deal with this trauma? And I'm also a part of a spiritual orientation. I'm also a religious person. I believe that God is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But yet this trauma happened. And so for some people, they begin to have a discord in their relationship with God. And that in itself can be grief. Especially if they have this really deep connection and then all of a sudden they separate themselves from God trying to figure out why did this happen? I don't understand. Does it make sense? That's the type of loss, that relationship with God they're experiencing. So that in itself can bring grief as well.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that. That's very helpful. And I'm gonna post also in the in the resources, Rain, which is a, you know, famous organization mm-hmm. that has a lot to do yeah. with sexual trauma. And basically about forty percent of all victims already knew their perpetrator it was somebody mm-hmm. in the family or a friend, and that's part of the exploitation. And that's really, very important. But I, I really appreciate what you're saying in kind of the first level of grieving is this is what happened to me. And now mm-hmm. this is not the life that I signed up for. And then also the loss of that relationship. It's it's very hard to reconcile, especially intimate partner violence, which again, about 33% of, of things that happen are, are between partners that I, mm-hmm. I thought you loved me. I thought we were going to committed consensual respectful relationship. And so that loss of trust is a betrayal. And then, of course, mm-hmm. the, the ultimate loss of trust is with God. Why did God, the, the ultimate question that that the prophets say and that we find is why do bad things happen to good people? And and the implications of, well, I must be a bad person. So I, I, I want to hone in a little bit more. When I talk about the five stages, I often look at anger and I say, okay, let, let, let's dissect that. So you're angry mm-hmm. at the person that did this to you. You're angry at people that didn't protect you. You're angry at yourself for letting yourself go there which i understand some of that is bargaining also like thinking maybe if, if this would have been different you're also angry at god and i want to talk about that i want to accentuate that there is a huge existential crisis that happens for many people when we go through loss whether it's the death of someone which is not planned or tragic or i guess the more tragic sometimes i, I find it's like sometimes the more tragic the more shocking and then people turn to god or sometimes people turn away from god i you know i don't know how to, define, they say that if somebody's strong with God, then when you're tested, it goes stronger. You and I know people, we're not, I, I, I'm not someone to judge and say who's stronger. They got stronger. Right. Who was weak? They got weak. I don't know. All I know is these things are tragic and we, our hearts go out to anybody that's suffering any loss. Um, But I want to talk about specifically that anger part with God. How do you see that manifesting? Like when people come in your office and, and talk about traumas they've gone through or death, that, that spiritual aspect of trauma and, and grief.
1: Yeah. That reminds me of one young lady I was working with. She had experienced sexual trauma with her husband and they ended up divorcing and she experienced other sexual trauma with another gentleman as well. So she had two perpetrators and she talked about just the struggle of on one hand, she loved God and wanted to be close to God. But on the other hand, it was hard because she felt that he allowed these things to happen. And so it's this really challenging experience she had inside of herself. And it got to the point where she began to feel angry at herself during those moments when she was mad at God and then angry at God sometimes for allowing these things to happen. So it's just anger all around her. And we had to get to a point of forgiveness. That's what it boils down to is forgiveness. And so it boils down to forgiving ourselves if we feel like we played a role in this, forgiving the perpetrator as well. And then when it comes to this component with God, it's more about acceptance. Accepting that this is what happened. And that's going to be very hard, very challenging. There's this concept called radical acceptance. Um, it's a DBT scale dialectical behavioral therapy. Uh, and so the concept behind it is we see the past as the past. We acknowledge that I felt angry at that time. I felt sad. I felt hurt. I felt confused. And that's how I felt. At the same time, I recognize I can't go in the past and change anything. I can't repeat 16 years ago or five years ago. We can't repeat two minutes ago. And so it's about accepting that it was what it was and I can't change the past. Yes, I felt angry. These are my thoughts I had about it. And that's how I felt. And that's what came for me to feel that way. But this is the present moment to hear the now. How do I want life to look right now moving forward? And so sometimes embracing radical acceptance can be so helpful when it comes to working through this anger. Because if, when it comes to anger, as you and I both know, if anger sticks around for a long period of time, it can turn to bitterness. And bitterness can seep into all parts of our life. And so it's very important that when we have anger, that we nip it in the bud as soon as possible. So we embrace forgiveness. We embrace radical acceptance. Accepting the past as what it was. Um, and I can't go back and change it. No matter how much I want to go back in the past, I can't go back and change anything. Um, but I can focus on for the present moment. I can't focus on how my future
0: to look. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think my last question for you before I go through some of the resources, if somebody is coming to you for help and they've gone through a loss or they've gone through a traumatic uh, situation and they're grieving, there's a certain feeling of this is never going to end. Mm-hmm. What message could you give them from a spiritual standpoint, from an emotional standpoint about that? Because I, we've all been there in life where we just feel like, oh my goodness, like I can't go on. What what do you say?
1: Yeah, more about separating ourselves from our symptoms. Um, we are not our symptoms. Um, many times people identify themselves as "I am depressed." I this is who I am. I'm just a depressed person. So it's about separating ourselves from our symptoms, um, especially when it comes to trauma and loss. And then once we separate ourselves from our symptoms, we then decide how do I want to handle these symptoms? I'm going to get triggered. It just it is what it is. But how long do I want these years to last? Do I want to last a week, a month, or just a couple moments? So coping skills go a long way, whether that is prayer, whether that is quoting a scripture or a passage that brings you comfort or support, whether that is talking to a friend, sitting with their friends, spending quality time with others. Um, So I really encourage people to code in on coping skills to help through those challenging times. And just know that that, uh, moments don't last forever and down moments don't last forever. Um, yeah, up and down moments that last forever.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. So just a couple of quick resources. Tiffany's website is missdilworth.com. And if you want to email Tiffany, you want to just give us your email address and I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah,
1: definitely. So it's my name, Tiffany.dilworth at yahoo.com.
0: And the Tiffany is spelled with an I at the end. It is. Yes. Okay.
1: Tiffany with an
0: I. Yes. We'll put that in the show Mm -hmm. notes. And I really highly recommend especially if you're a clinician working with grief we have so many trainings from tiffany they're well worth your time prolonged grief disorder running a group uh, a grief group types of grief and assessment which we touched upon all these things the connection of sexual trauma and grief which again we got like a one minute synopsis triggers and interventions and of course a grief counseling primer which is a very general way of dealing with it but also very specific and practical so thank you very much for sharing all your expertise Unfortunately, this is something that we have to deal with with all of our clients, yeah. but I really appreciate that you gave us some very clear guidance and some practical tips, so thank you.
1: Thank you for having me on here, I really enjoyed it. Great talking to you. Sure,
0: I hope people will use those resources and be able to get the support we need and be able to also, the clinicians could learn how to better support clients going through these things. Sounds wonderful, great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Jewish Trauma Network. For additional resources, free and premium courses, leave questions or suggestions, or to support our mission, please visit jewishtrauma.com. And always remember, your life can and will be better.